Well, when it comes to uh, building fancy, luxurious dwellings, there are a few people who have surpassed uh, the historical figure of King Ludwig II of Bavaria. And uh, he built a few nice dwelling places, a few nice homes, like Linderhof uh, near Oberammergau in the Bavarian Alps. Now, he had some good landscape to work with, by the way. Um, and then there's Herrenchiemse, which he patterned after Versailles. He built this on a beautiful island in the middle of a huge lake. And then the dwelling place he's most well known for, of course, is Neuschwanstein. Say Neuschwanstein. Neuschwanstein. Good job. All right. Of course, that's, that's well known even here because Disney patterned their castle after um, this one. Now, I've been, since I live in Germany, I've been to all of these castles. I've been to Neuschwanstein more times than I can count. But there's always something a little disturbing to me about it is that although he expended huge amounts of money and effort in building these palaces and castles, the last two he only spent five or six days in. In fact, check, check this out. In, in the master suite of, uh, you know, the, the bedroom at Neuschwanstein, they have a bed that took 14 carpenters four years to make. All the spires of different cathedrals around the country in this beautiful bed, never slept in. You know, and there's something just kind of surprising and even a little disturbing about that, creating this beautiful dwelling place and then not living there. Well, that's not the way it was with the tabernacle. God had Moses and the people build this tabernacle, this beautiful tabernacle, but God dwelt in it. And that's how we end the book of Exodus. In chapter 40, we see that God takes up residence in the tabernacle. He is in his dwelling place. So as we said last Sunday, a good portion of the last half of the book of Exodus has to do with the tabernacle. God gives the blueprints for the tabernacle, and then the tabernacle parts are all built. And now finally, in chapter 40, and I invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles or on your devices. Finally now, in chapter 40, God says, all right, let's set it up, Moses. So we pick it up, chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. First day of the first month. Now you remember that the Exodus, the Passover event, reset the calendar for the Jews. And so that became the first month of the first year. And so here we are a year later, and on the, on the first day of the first month, it will be now the second year, uh, Moses is to set up the tabernacle, to put it in place. So in verses 3 to 16 of chapter 40, uh, God explains to Moses how he is to set up the tabernacle, in what order. And then in verses 17 to 33, Moses actually does it. Which, by the way, is a pattern that we see in Exodus. God commands, Moses obeys. God commands and explains and gives instructions, Moses obeys. It's a really great pattern. So, Moses sets it up, and now we're all the way to verse 33. Chapter 40, verse 33, we read, And so Moses finished the work. He accomplished the work. It's kind of an echo of Genesis 2-2, where it says God was finished with his work after the week of creation. And there's a connection between those two 
because the tabernacle was a little bit of heaven on earth. We talked about that last week. There's some creation imagery going on because the whole idea is God dwelling with man, being together with his creatures. So what happens next, though, after the tabernacle gets set up is really cool. It's really amazing. This next paragraph, we see God's glorious presence filling the tabernacle with unapproachable light. So let's read verse 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The lights are on in somebody's home. God is in the house. You remember in the old days out in the country, you could tell if people were home because the kitchen light was on, right? The light's on, somebody's home. Well, the tabernacle is filled brightly with the light of God's glory, communicating, demonstrating, expressing, revealing the truth that God is present. God has taken up residence in the tabernacle. He is among his people. His glory is there. But what is God's glory? What is God's glory? Well, God's glory is not one of his attributes or characteristics. We can say, for example, God is love, or God is just, or God is faithful. You, you, you can go on and on with that. But you can't say God is glory. Because that doesn't make any sense, does it? So what is God's glory? God's glory is the shining out, the expression, the revelation of all of his attributes. It's the weightiness of the godness of God. Now, if you can understand that, then you understand his glory. Which is to say it might be just slightly beyond our understanding, okay? But it, it is the shining out, the brilliant, radiant shining out of the goodness and greatness of who God is. And that's what Moses wanted to know. You know, when he said a few chapters back, show me your glory, show me your glory. What he was saying is, God, I want to know who you are, what you're like in your essence, in your being, in your person, your attributes, your characteristics. Shine it out and let me know. I want to know your glory. So throughout the book of Exodus, uh, we've gotten glimpses. Moses and the people have gotten glimpses of God's glory. Of course, there was the burning bush incident, and then there were the great plagues, God's mighty arm displayed against the so-called gods of Egypt. And then there was the rumbling and the thunder and the fire on Mount Sinai way up there. Moses got a little closer view uh, when the glory of God passed by him. But now they see something they've never seen before, and that is the resplendent, radiant glory of God descending down to earth among them and filling the tabernacle. This, this cloud of God's glory was what we call a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's the, again, the, the whole godness of God, his divine being. It's not necessarily something that you can see, but on occasions, God would express it visibly in this radiant, resplendent cloud of light. And it descends on the tabernacle and fills it. 
What a spectacular display. And you thought the fireworks were good. This is something far, far greater and more wonderful than that. So the people could see that God was in the house amidst them, with them, that he was going to go with them and be with them and lead them. So what's the significance of the book of Exodus ending with this event? The glory of God fills the tabernacle. Well, it's hugely significant. Because you remember they had rebelled against him and worshipped the golden calf and, and he had threatened to completely destroy them. And yet Moses had interceded and God forgave them and he actually then chose to go with them to pursue his heart's desire for him to be their God and for them to be his people and for him to dwell in their midst. It shows God's gracious character. And it had a lot to do with worship and witness. Worship and witness. Because now that God was present in their midst, in the tabernacle, this was a place of worship where they could draw near. They could go to the tabernacle. They could worship God and learn about God and have their hearts and lives transformed by God and therefore reflect God. So, so worship flowed into witness. Those are the two main ideas, worship and witness. As they grew in their knowledge and understanding of God because he dwelt in their midst, they would reflect more and more what he is like and therefore be a witness to the nations around them of what it looks like to have a relationship with the one true God that would draw others to know and love and serve and submit and believe in Yahweh. Well, that was the purpose, but the tabernacle was a tent Tents wear out. I have a tent. It doesn't wear out. That's because it doesn't get used, right? The, the tabernacle got used. <laughs> and, uh, and so it lasted for a good long time, several hundred years, but, but eventually uh, it wore out and it was replaced. Things get replaced, don't they? So we had company coming for July 4th weekend, and so Mary and I did some cleaning and sorting, and we went through a few uh, closets and cupboards and things that where junk tends to collect and I found in one of them this box and in it are three old iPhones <laughs> how about that um, so they're, they're basically all the same thing right they have the function of a phone well okay fine they do a few other things but it's a phone but I have multiple versions of the phone upgrades if you will and the same thing is true of the tabernacle, is it went through a few upgrades, continuing to have the essence and function and purpose of worship and witness, but it went through different versions up through even today. So we're going to take a look at these different versions of the tabernacle. Even after this original tent was replaced, the function continued. So let's look at tabernacle version 2.0, which is the temple that Solomon built. Uh, King Solomon built this incredibly grand temple. It had the same function as the tabernacle. It was just durable, solid, twice as big, and done with great amount of gold and silver and bronze and uh, just uh, really incredibly wonderfully done. And 
King Solomon prays a wonderful prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. And we get a bit of deja vu. Because like something happens here that we've seen before. All right, and here it is. This is 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, and they had just placed the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in this temple that Solomon had built, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service. Why? Because the cloud, the glory of the Lord, filled his temple. So then again, we have the glory of God descending and filling his dwelling place. God was in the house of his temple. He had taken up residence among his people. Now Solomon prays this wonderful prayer, and it includes these functions of worship and witness. So he says, for example, in verses um, 23 and following, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. And here we see this wonderful view of God as the transcendent one. The highest heavens can't contain him. He is infinite in his greatness, far beyond the universe. The universe can't contain him. He made it. He's far above and beyond and distant and separate from us in his holiness and greatness. And yet he's also imminent. He's close. He is near. So that, so that when we turn to him in prayer, he hears and he responds. And the whole rest of the prayer is um, Solomon giving all these instances when the people will sin and rebel and blow it. And he says, each time, if they will turn towards your temple and they will pray, hear, hear them and forgive. Hear and forgive. Isn't it incredibly wonder, wonderful that this great God that we cannot begin to imagine or comprehend, this incomprehensible great one, hears and forgives. He does that today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the whole worship part. As, as we draw near to him, we have forgiveness and reconciliation, and we draw near to God and get to know him, and he transforms our lives. He changes our rebellion into faithfulness, into obedience, into service, and as that happens, we are a witness. So look at this, what King Solomon appraised in his prayer, thinking about the witness of the temple. He says, when they, and that they is uh, non-Jews, people from the nations, when the, when the nations, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Remember, oh, I thought the temple was his dwelling place. Solomon knows that God's bigger than the temple. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Why? And here, here's the big purpose so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people. That's the witness of the temple. Worship and witness, powerful stuff. Well, the temple lasted for about 500 years. Uh, it's a pretty good long run, but then it was destroyed, torn down by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So utterly destroyed. 
Well, it looks like the end of the tabernacle, God's glorious presence among his people. But it wasn't the end of the story. God was creating a new way. He knew, of course, in the very beginning where it was all headed, but he, but he was going to come up with a new way to reveal his glory among his people, and that's how we get to Tabernacle version 3.0. The Christ, we're talking about Jesus here. The incarnation, the eternal God took up residence among us in the person of Jesus Christ. We've read this verse just this morning already, but uh, we've read it several times in this series, but it's so important. The word became flesh and made his dwelling literally tabernacled among us. Now John wasn't the only one to say this. Look at this. Paul in Colossians 1.19 wrote this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, the godness of God, the full essence of who he is, dwell in him, him being Jesus. So the, the glory of God dwelt in Jesus. Now, you can't say it more plainly than the author of Hebrews. He says it as plainly as you can possibly get it. This is what he writes. The sun, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When it comes to Jesus, God was in the house, fully and completely and perfectly with no limitations, right? Now, then again, there was a choice. Jesus made a choice to limit himself. From the moment of his conception, Jesus was the God-man, right? Fully God, fully man. And yet he chose to do his life and work as a human being, depending on the power of the Father. And so we get another little deja vu moment at Christ's baptism, when after he's baptized, the heavens open up. You know, you get the cloud and you get the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you get something that looks like a dove. That's the best way they could describe it. But it's the Holy Spirit coming down, descending, and filling Jesus for his work. And so he, he, he was filled with the glory of God as the God-man, but also with the Holy Spirit, with the fullness of God. You want to draw near to God in worship? To be equipped for witness, Jesus, Jesus is who we go to. He is Tabernacle version 3.0. Now, let's go back to John 1.14 because we didn't finish the verse. We, we've talked about that first part, but not the second part because the glory plays in again here. So, we said that um, uh, Jesus tabernacled among us, and then John says... The, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. So what did they see? Okay, we've seen it. We've seen the glory. What did they see? Well, okay, actually, Peter, James, and John saw the radiant light of God's glory in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They got a glimpse of it, you know, the same resplendent, radiant glory that came down and filled the temple, or the tabernacle in the temple, they also saw 
uh, in Jesus. But I don't think that's, the, that's not the glory that John is talking about here. He, he says, we have seen the glory of God in Christ's words and deeds in, in all the truth that he has shared. In other words, we've seen that he is full of grace and truth. We've seen the attributes and character of God, grace and truth, fully revealed together in the person of Jesus Christ. That is glory. By the way, those words grace and truth can linguistically be traced back to God saying to Moses on Mount Sinai that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. So God reveals his glory to Moses. He calls out these truths. And now John says we saw the same thing in Jesus. Grace and truth. Grace and full of grace and truth. Wow. That's something. That is glorious. Now, I think I've told you this story before, but nobody on the speaking team seems to remember it, so I'm going to tell you it again. Uh, one time, uh, when the boys were really little, we were visiting churches that were supporting us when we were missionaries in Germany, and we were in Colorado Springs, and we were driving through Colorado Springs, and we got off to get gas or something. They were doing all kinds of construction, construction everywhere. And we couldn't find an open on-ramp back onto the highway. I was driving around and around and around trying to get back on the highway. Finally, my eyes locked onto a sign that said on-ramp, you know, back onto the highway. And so I'm focused on that, and I missed something called a red stoplight. It was just that the new stoplights had been put in but covered. There was just one of those temporary little stand things on the side. I was focused on the on-ramp, went right through it. There was a police officer at the intersection. So, woo! And the boys were like, cool! <laughs> Not so cool. And so I pull over, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my license plate's from Indiana. I'm going to give the whole sad, you know, don't, I've never been here before. I don't know my way around construction. And if I can be like my mom, who talked her way out of every ticket she was ever, like... <laughs> Maybe I have a little bit of that gene in me. Maybe a little bit of the magical work. And I'm, I'm looking in the side view mirror, and she is coming. I'm doing, and she's got bigger muscles than I do. And, and so I give my little sad story and everything. $130 ticket. There you go. Now, had I run the red light? Was that just? Yeah, man, it was truth, baby. Okay? I had run the red light, full through the red light, and she had given me justice. Huh? $130 ticket. There went truth. And then I looked over to see what I was going to get from the other lady sitting on my right. She gave me grace. Forgiveness, understanding, you know? She understood the situation, no problem. And of course, you know, $130 right now may be not such a big deal to us, but back then, that was a big deal. You know, that was a hit. And she was full of grace and understanding and forgiveness. And as I drove away, I thought to myself, wow, isn't that the way life is? That we, there's truth and there's grace, there's justice and there's mercy, but rarely can it be one person at the same time. But Jesus, the glorious thing about Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth 
all the time. Wow. And guess what? He's, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but he's called us as a church to reflect his glory. That means we need to be full of what? Grace and truth. And guess what? No one of you is going to do it. It's going to take all of us. Because some of us are wired a little bit more towards grace and some of us are wired a little bit more truth. But if we'll live in harmony and unity, maybe we can reflect the glory of Jesus by being full of grace and truth. And I think some of the things that divide us and polarize us have to do a little bit with this kind of grace and truth. But we're called to be one in Christ and to work together to, to reveal the fullness of who he is. Grace and truth, that is his glory. And this glory far surpasses the glory of the tabernacle and the temple. I love what Paul writes here. Check this out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, For what was glorious, so what's he talking about? What was glorious? Well, he's talking about the old covenant. He's talking about Moses and the law. He's talking about the tabernacle and the priesthood and everything that belonged to it. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. We don't use that word surpassing very often. It means superior, okay? The surpassing glory. What is the surpassing glory? Now what glory is he talking about? Well, in the context, he's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about Jesus and the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. That this is far greater and better than what was before. And if what was transitory, I mean temporary came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So Friday night, we had our party, our July 4th party, and three things didn't last. I had bought some new flashlights, but really cheap, and also bought cheap batteries. And you know what? Two out of the three flashlights didn't last the evening. I also bought cheap lighters, you know, you know, the lighter things. I bought like six of them. Four out of the six didn't last the evening. But let's talk about what really doesn't last, a firework. Brilliant for a moment. It's gone. Fast. It's gone. It doesn't last. Almost everything in life is like that. It doesn't last. Ah, oh, but one thing lasts. Jesus and the gospel, his grace and his truth, and the hope that it brings, it lasts. Okay, we've got to hold on to what lasts. Okay, that's... Uh, so, Jesus, he dies in our place for us, but then resurrects triumphant over sin and death and ascends to heaven. That's not really the end of Tabernacle 3.0, but it does lead into another version, 4.0. Version 4.0 of the Tabernacle, and we talked about it last week, is the church. The church. The people, not the building. All right, the people, not the building. It's a spiritual reality, not uh, primarily a physical one. So on the day of Pentecost, that's the birthday of the church when the church began, God took up residence among his people, the church. God is in the house. We, we read this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
So all that violent wind and that shaking and that fire should remind us of Mount Sinai and the glory and the presence of God. But now that glory had descended, the Holy Spirit himself, to indwell his people. God is not just in the house. He's in us. He's in us, his people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It still has to do with worship and witness, though. It still has to do with worship and witness. You think about that, that uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit is have the very presence and glory of God in us to know him in an intimate, relational way. But it results in witness, and it certainly resulted in witness in Acts chapter 2 <clears throat> because uh, it was, a, it was a, f- a festival, a celebration, a feast time, and... Uh, There were people there from all over the Roman Empire, and they heard this commotion and this sound, and they came to figure it out, and Peter preaches an incredible message, and 3,000 people come to faith. 3,000 people come to faith that day. Talk about the glory and power of God at work. The Holy Spirit drawing men and women to himself and transforming their hearts for the purpose of witness, and the church continued to grow. Wow, that's the glory of God, right? We want to see the glory of God at work, grace and truth. But but if we live out grace and truth, one result will be conversions, people coming to faith in Christ. And that's what we want to be, is is we're not just here to write it out, you know, I hope we make it, hold on to something that floats. No, we have a purpose and a mission, and our goal is to be a conversion community where people actually come to faith in Christ. And how do you do that? Well, you make evangelism a priority, but you do it as a team, as a church, as a group of people, and you make sure that evangelism, outreach, and witness is a part of all of our ministries, whatever they are, and we we make sure that storytelling about transformed lives is a part of the DNA of what we do. And then finally, man, just a real concrete goal is um, that, that 10% of your church will have come to Christ in the past year. Wouldn't that be a great goal to see that happen? Talk about a dynamic of the glory of God to see such new life around us. That's the glory of God, okay, at work as we see lives transformed. But wait, there's more. There's still another version. We're not done with the versions. How about this one? Version 5.0. We're going to call that the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. Because in Revelation 21, everything is recreated, and God comes and dwells on earth among his people. God is now in the house of his whole creation. It's not just a little tent. It's not a beautiful uh, temple. It's, It's it's the, it's the entirety of creation is filled with the glory of God. And we read that in verses 22 and 23. John writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's referring to Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Ah, oh, we got something to look forward to, huh? Wow. Let's stick on mission until that day. That'll be something to experience when the entirety of creation um, radiates with the resplendent glory of God, more beautiful than anything we can imagine or come up with. Wow. Well, so what? Now what? Well, it's about worship and witness. 
And uh, I think that we have to understand that it's not about us. Our lives and this earth and history and all that's happening, it's, it's not about us because we're so tempted to make it about our glory, my experience, my pleasure, my self-fulfillment, my self-expression, my glory. But our glory is nothing. It's pitiful and lame and empty and worthless compared to the glory of God that he wants to work in and through us. So, so we, we need to come to him and worship that says, empty me of myself and fill me with you. I, we, we need to have Moses' heart. Show me your glory. I there's nothing I want more than to see your glory, what you're like, and to know you. That's worship. To know you and to allow your spirit to transform and to change my heart and my mind and my words and my choices. God, please, I need that. We, we need to, to desire his glory, because we recognize it's the greatest possible thing out there, so far greater than anything else this world has to offer. That's the first thing, but as we do that, as we worship him with that kind of a heart, it will, it'll turn into a witness. It'll be a witness to the world. Are the lights on in our church? We're the light of the world. We're to be the light of the world, because God is in the house of his church. He's in his people. The spirit is present. Are the lights on? How can we even tell if he's in the house? How do we know if he's in the house? How, how will people see God's glory in us and know, hey, God's in that house? Well, I think we need to do some thinking about it. I'm not going to go tell you to do something today. I want us to really think about this. To, to pursue it in our hearts and minds. What would it look like for me as an individual, but us as a church? to express the glory of God. Now, Scripture's full of ways to do that. We've talked about grace and truth. That's one that we could just meditate on. A fruit of the Spirit would be another. But I just recently was challenged on this one out of James chapter 3. I was talking about just, you know, decisions and choices have to be made and all feels a little bit overwhelming. And someone in our life group, you know, just the Spirit used them to challenge me on this. He goes, look, look, what, look what James writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, now that wisdom, that's, that's attached to the glory of God. The wisdom of God is an expression of the glory of God, right? But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. I see an eight-part sermon series. <laughs> but those, those, that's countercultural. If we lived like that, and if people would use those words to describe us, God's glory would be shining out through his church. I've been spending some time thinking about those words and praying about them because I feel like I, I need the Lord to do some work in my heart in some of those areas. Oh, we, we talk about branding and brands in our culture a lot. And the fact is that you and I bear a brand. We bear a name. We bear the name Jesus. 
Are, are, are we on brand? Are we brand consistent? Is how we live and interact and the choices we make, whether it's on Facebook or at work or in our home or in our neighborhood or at play, does it consistently reflect the brand of the glory of God? You can't just, you can't just put that on like a t-shirt with, you know, shh, Nike. It's a heart transformation. And that's what we're in the business of doing by God's grace and through his spirit. But, th- but m- maybe we need to pray today as individuals and even as a church, God, transform our hearts so that we will reflect the greatness and the goodness of who you are. That's what we need and that's what the world needs because the church is the hope of the world. I'm going to ask the band to come. We're going to sing a final song. And as we even sing that, it's an opportunity as we praise and worship Jesus to say, do, do a work in my heart so that I'm not living for my glory, but I'm beginning to get a thirst and a hunger and a desire for your righteousness and your glory to see that expressed not just through one person, but through us as a church.